Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. I want to invite you to take your Bible and go to the book of Nahum, to the book of Nahum. And why should we walk through the book of Nahum? Well, because it's God's word. It's God's inherent, infallible word that he has given to us to reveal who he is and how he works in creation. And so today, we're going to go through this journey, just as we did last year, in kind of a unique way. When you walked in today, you were handed a sheet of paper. It's not homework, but it's a guide for us. And how we're going to walk through these books over the next six weeks. Some of you right now, you're thinking, goodness gracious, he usually preaches for 30, 40, 45, 50 minutes on three verses. Now he's got to cover an entire book. Well, we've tried to order it in such a way where I stay under an hour and a half, all right? So... Today, we're going to navigate through first base, second base, third base, and home base. Those four sections are going to be this, background information, biblical observations, gospel revelation, and finally, life application. My goal today is that you walk out of here knowing more than you ever knew about the book of Nahum, which I don't think is going to be real difficult. But secondly, that you walk out here understanding how the book of Nahum reveals the work of Christ and also how it speaks into our lives, all right? So today as we look at the book of Nahum, here's kind of our main idea for our sermon. A righteous God does not tolerate unrighteous living. A righteous God does not tolerate unrighteous living. Living. Let's make our way to first base now with background information. We really don't know anything about this prophet named Nahum other than his name means comfort or comforter and that he is an Elkoshite, which means that he is from the town of Elkosh. There are several different places that are, are, are kind of guessed at where Elkosh is. We don't really know uh, several options. The, the most interesting is the city of Capernaum. Some of you may be familiar with that. Jesus spent time in Capernaum in his uh, time here on earth. Uh, Capernaum means the village of Nahum. So that's a possibility that that could be where, where Nahum is from. Uh, this prophet, this prophet uh, spoke in the mid-7th century B.C., all right, mid-7th century B.C. We know that for, for several reasons. Number one, in chapter 3, as we'll see at the end of our time today, uh, it mentions the fall of this city in Egypt called Thebes. All right, the city of Thebes. That happened in 663 B.C. So we know that that has already taken place. At the same time, what we're going to find in the book of Nahum is the prophet speaking about God's judgment on the nation of Assyria, specifically on its capital, Nineveh. From history, we know that Nineveh fell in 612 BC. So it, it gives us an idea here of when Nahum is, is, is writing this, sometime in, in that mid-7th century BC. Now let me give you a little context of what's happening uh, surrounding this book. All right. Uh, remember, God had his chosen people, the people of Israel. He had said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. He told them, listen, you walk in obedience to me, there will be blessing. And when you don't, curse, cursing will come. It will not go well for you. And what we find is that we see David, Israel's greatest king, he rules. And there's good moments that happen in the kingdom. Then Solomon takes over. And really, from that point, things go downhill eventually to where Israel becomes a divided kingdom. 
You have Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. In the north Israel, you have one wicked king after another. They're not doing what is right in the eyes of God. In Judah, they fare a little bit better, but it's not perfect. And so what happens, God being faithful to what he had said to his people, because they were walking in wickedness, he brings punishment or discipline on them. And in 722, we see the Assyrian army, the greatest empire in the world, overtakes Israel. Israel no longer exists. Now Assyria is is in control of Israel. In Judah, there are major cities in Judah that are overtaken by the Assyrian Empire, but not Jerusalem, not the capital. So in a sense, Judah has not fallen, but there's a unique relationship between the people of Judah and the Assyrian Empire. They're kind of a vassal state. That means that their king is really working for the king of Assyria, if you will. So things are not good for the people of Israel because they constantly feel this pressure and influence from the Assyrian Empire. Now, again, a little bit more context for you. The Assyrian Empire was an empire that was ruthless. And when I say ruthless, that is a a significant understatement. Words really... um, are are not able to grasp everything that the Assyrian Empire had done and what they were known for. Things that I would tell you today that would make you sick to your stomach and how brutal they were towards other nations. And so Israel was, or I'm sorry, Judah was living in this constant fear and this constant oppression of the great and mighty and ruthless Assyrian Empire. And so what we find in the book of Nahum, the message is about the power of God to overcome the power of evil. What we find in these three chapters of the book of Nahum is a book about God's judgment on evil. And so that gives you a little bit of understanding of what's going on here in this book. So let's round first and go to second, and let's look at the biblical observations. What do we find in the book of Nahum? Well, most scholars, when they look at this book, they tend to break it up just along the chapter break. So you see three chapters in the book of Nahum, and like a good preacher, they break it into three points, all right? People give different descriptions of what it is that Nahum, or what Nahum is accomplishing here. Uh, some break up chapter 1, 2, and 3 as uh, the destruction of Nineveh uh, decreed in chapter 1. It is described in chapter 2, and in chapter 3, it is deserved, Tony Evans, when he breaks it up, he breaks it up by saying that chapter 1 is the declaration of judgment, chapter 2 is the power of judgment, and chapter 3 is the finality of judgment. All of those are good. They would work for us. But today, as I want to help us focus in on what I think is the major thrust of the book, and that is God's judgment on evil, we're going to look at this book and understand this book, understanding what God is doing here in judgment. So let's begin with chapter one. Chapter one, I just want you to write this. uh, The judgment of God is complex and just. The judgment of God is complex and just. You begin with verse one. We see here the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, right? The capital city of Assyria. uh, The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. What we're going to find here as we begin to work through the chapter in in, in, uh, verse 2 and 3, we see it speaking to the character of who God is. Chapter 2, it tells us that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now, at first blush, you may hear that and go, well, boy, that doesn't sound nice. 
that God sounds like a horrible person to go to a party with, right? I mean, he sounds like a God that's insecure and has a quick temper. But understand what they're saying here about God and what God is revealing about himself is not our understanding of jealousy. It's not the idea of someone who's, un, uh, who's insecure. The idea would be like if I came across a, an adult having a conversation with one of my children and I overheard him saying, hey, you don't need to listen to your parents. They don't know what they're talking about. Uh, a life that is filled with drug use is one that you should pursue. Right? In that moment, I am going to be a jealous father. Not because I'm insecure, but because there is someone who's trying to steal the affection, uh, or not really affection, well, yes, because he's saying your parents don't know what, what they're talking about, right? He's trying to misdirect my child from my love and my care and my leadership in his life. So there is a jealousy there of someone is wronging someone I love from what's best or right. And so when it says here that he's avenging God, it doesn't mean that he's quick-tempered and he's just reacting, but it's understanding that God cares for what is best. So we see in verse 2 and 3, the character of God. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power. And the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. We go down in verse 4 through 6, and we see not just the character of God, but we see the power of God. He mentions several things about uh, how he rebukes the sea and dries it up. He talks about the mountains quake before him. And in verse 6, we see this, this, this question, right? Look at, at verse 6. Who can withstand his indignation? The answer is easy there. No one. No one can withstand the indignation of God. And finally, that brings us to verse 7, really through the end of chapter 1, and that is the promise of God. Look at me in verse 7 and 8. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. Verse 8. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. As we examine the book of Nahum and the biblical observations, I want us to start here at this place of understanding that the judgment of God is complex and just. When we consider the judgment of God and we look at this chapter, it helps us understand the complexity of it because, one, we think about the character of God as it tells us here in verse 7 that God is good. And at the same time, in verse 8, it says he's going to completely destroy Nineveh. At times, it can be hard for us to wrestle with how God works among his creation and judgment, at the same time to reconcile it with who God is and who the Bible tells us that God is. And we just need to recognize that. It's complex. There are moments where we just have to step back and say, we don't know. We're not sure. We have to acknowledge as the biblical writer says that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And it's not just with the character of God, but also in God's timing. We see there in verse, two, or in verse 3, right? The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The judgment of God can be complex because at times we believe that God should act. God should step in, but God chooses not to. And so it can be complex because we're not on the same timetable that God is always on. Let me give you an example of of how this can be complex, but we just have to trust that God's ways are higher than our ways. Uh, people from time to time, not often, but will ask me, hey, Michael, have you ever been in a fight before? And I'll say, yeah, one time. Now, I know y'all don't want to hear about it today, so I'm just going to keep moving, but okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> I was in fourth grade. My next door neighbor, Michael, was making fun of my girlfriend. True story. Because of the chivalrous man that I am, I decided that I would defend her honor. And so we began to fight. I mean, fists are flying. 
Now, students, I'm not saying do this. I'm just saying this is what happened. All right. And so we began to fight. He's taking off his shoes and throwing them, and I'm just whooping him, right? Now, he's not here to tell his side of the story, and that's okay, because I'm whooping him, right? <laughs> and and as, I, as, as I am defending my girlfriend's honor, he takes off running. He runs around our fence of our backyard, and I turn the corner, and when I turn the corner, there my neighbor is. His name was Michael as well, and he's holding this big dirt cloth. And when I turn the corner, he throws it, and it hits me right upside the head. And, I mean, it just drops me to the ground. Well, my other neighbor was there that day, and his name was Billy, and Billy was three years older than us. And after that happened, Billy chased down my other neighbor, Michael, who I was fighting with, and when he caught him, he grabbed him and he threw him into a bunch of thorn bushes. Don't do that, kids, all right? But here's why I tell you that story. If I would have begun this time of telling you this, and I said, let me tell you the time about when my neighbor, who was three years older than my other neighbor, threw him into a thorn bush, you would automatically begin to, to determine what happened and who was in the right and who was in the wrong. But because you understand a little bit more of the story, you go, wait a second, there's more to what was happening than just maybe the limited information that I had. So what's the point of that story? Don't talk about my wife. I'll defend her honor, right? <laughs> Not really. But I want us to understand that when it comes to... <laughs> Am I good? She said, I don't know. So, when we see here in this text of Nahum, it just gives us another reminder that the judgment of God is complex. We don't know all the information. We don't know all the timing. But here's what I do believe with all my heart. We may not always grasp how God is accomplishing his judgment on evil, but we can always trust that his judgment on evil is always rooted in his goodness and his righteousness. I believe that wholeheartedly. One commentator, Ken Barker, he says this. He says, after all, what truly good human being could sit idly by in the face of cruel oppression such as meted out by Assyria? How much less could God allow such wickedness to continue? At the heart of his message is the recognition that Yahweh as a God of justice who will not let injustice and oppression go unpunished. And we see that, don't we? We, we see it in, in verse 3. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. So his judgment is complex. At the same time, it is just. That means it is right. It means it is in a line with God's character and his righteousness. Why do we see that? Well, one, it's in understanding who the people of Assyria were and what they had been doing in their actions and in, 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 against these other empires, the oppression that they had been placing on others. We see with clarity in verse 11, this says, One has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. The end of chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, we see with clarity he's speaking to what we believe is the king of Assyria. And he says, listen, there's going to be no offspring to carry on your name. This was like the original cancel culture right here. There's no lineage that's going to, going to keep your name going. But at the end of verse 15, he says, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. And so in God's punishment of Assyria, God was just. We can trust God's judgment in the world. It's complex, but we can trust that it is just. Second observation is this from chapter 2. The judgment of God is unmistakable and matchless. It is unmistakable and matchless. 
Nahum begins with verse 1 of chapter 2. And I love this where we see the, uh, I think, the sarcasm of the biblical writer here. Look at what he says to, to Assyria. He says, one who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. You catch the irony there? He's just told us that God is the one who makes the mountains quake. He is the one who dries up the rivers and the seas. And he's saying to Assyria, yeah, get ready. But understand that the judgment of God is absolutely unmistakable. Look at me in verse 2. He says, for the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel through ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. It's unmistakable that this judgment that is going to come is going to be from the Lord. And so we see in verse 3, how is it going to happen? We'll see here he speaks of warriors. Um, the shields of the warriors are dyed Red. Some believe that that is a reference to the Babylonians who would often do that. Their warriors would dye their shields red as they would go into battle. And we know eventually that it is the Babylonians and the Medes that are going to accomplish what God is saying is going to happen here. The shields of the warriors are dyed red. Verse 4, the chariots dashed madly through the streets. It continues to go through on what's going to happen here. And then finally in verse 10, look at verse 10. Desolation. Decimation. Devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. What we see here is that it is unmistakable that God is going to do it. God is going to bring his judgment on this oppressor. He is going to bring his judgment on this evil and it will be without a doubt. Now this is significant. And it's really hard for us to grasp because at this time, the world would have looked at Assyria as to say, this is an unconquerable empire. There is no way that the Assyrians would be wiped off the face of the earth. There is no empire that has the resources that could go in and accomplish the things that are being said here. But yet with God and his judgment, it is absolutely unmistakable. It's interesting that when Nineveh was built, it was built in such a way to withstand a 20-year siege. I want you to think about that. They had built their capital city in such a way that it would be able to withstand 20 years of being attacked. That was the length to which they went. When we look at history and we see what happened, history tells us that Nineveh would would end up falling in 612 B.C. when the, the Tigris and the Kosher rivers overflowed their banks. And when they overflowed their banks, that flooding, it resulted in the flood destroying part of their defensive wall into the city. And that it would be the Babylonians and the Medes that would actually go right through that area of that wall that had been destroyed by that flood to do what God had unmistakably said that he was going to do. It's not just unmistakable, but I want you to see the judgment of God is it's matchless. Verse 11 and 12, we see that he's going to make some reference here to the lion. Assyrian kings, or, yeah, Assyrian kings often um, 
describe themselves as lions. That was a Syrian verbiage, a Syrian language that speak to how ruthless and how confident and how arrogant they were. But then you look in verse 13. He says, beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will make your chariots go up in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. What God is going to do here when he comes against evil is going to be absolutely matchless. No matter how powerful, no matter how oppressive, no matter how long this oppression had endured, Hear me, it should produce hope in us today that, that the most devastating and powerful empires the world has ever known is no match for our God. We'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to home base and talk about the life application. But it should produce hope in us. I think that's one of the reasons why the significance of Nahum, whose, whose name means comfort, and then you're reading this book and you're saying, I ain't hearing a lot of comfort here. But it's the comfort for God's people to understand that when God is going to come against his enemies, he is going to come in a way that is unmistakable in its significance, and it is matchless. One of the reasons that I think it does provide comfort is leading up to this in Judah, you had two kings that the Bible records did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You had Manasseh, followed by Manasseh, you had Amnon. And then you had the next king, which is a small boy, some of you are familiar with his name, named Josiah. And the Bible tells us that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of God. He got rid of the idols. He got rid of the Asherah poles, and they went back to who God had called them to be. And I want you to think for a moment as possibly Josiah is beginning his reign as a young man who's trying to do what's right in the eyes of God. And at the entire time, he understands there is this Assyrian empire that is out there that is matchless, that is powerful, that is ruthless. And yet here we have the prophet Nahum who comes and says, listen, God is going to do this. It is a source of comfort and that God is going to judge the evil of the Assyrians. Last observation is this, is chapter 3. The judgment of the Lord is perfect and final. The judgment of the Lord is perfect and final. What, what, what I think we're going to see here in chapter 3 is, is the prophet saying, what has happened to you is now going to happen before you. It began in verse 1. It says, woe to the city of blood. Totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. It goes on in verse 3. Charging horsemen, flashing swords, shining spear, heaps of slain mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead. The Assyrian army, when they would go into a city, two things that they would do. One, the bodies that were dead, they would pile it up as a monument to their devastation and to who they were. Secondly, they would do these death marches where they would walk people out of the city and they would scatter the empire that they had defeated. And so what we're seeing here is the judgment of God that is coming is going to be perfect and final and that it is going to be complete and that God is going to do to the Assyrians, through the Babylonians and Medes, exactly what they had been doing to others. In fact, it will be so great that in verse 7, look at what it says in verse 7. It says, Then all who see you will recoil from you, saying... Nineveh is devastated. 
Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Now let me ask you a question. Why would you recoil from someone? Well, now after hearing my story today about how I, you know, took care of the honor of my girlfriend, you're going to recoil when you're around me, right? You're going to look and say, man, my pastor, he's a bad man. He beat someone up in fourth grade. Not really. But we recoil out of fear, right? We recoil if, if, if it's a, a ride that we're on at a park, right, and, and the big drop is coming, and we kind of brace back like we're recoiling back out of fear of what's to come. And for generation after generation, what happened is the nations would constantly recoil back from the Assyrians because of their might and their power and how ruthless they were. But what we see here is that the judgment of God is being perfect and final. When God steps in and brings judgment on this evil, it says that the nations will now recoil. But they're not going to recoil out of fear. They're going to recoil out of amazement of, oh my goodness, would you look at them. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? You've had those moments, right, where you're like, oh my gosh, that just happened, right? And that's the sense that we see here in God's judgment. When God's judgment comes... We see here two other things in in this book, the end of chapter 3. One is the mentioning of the end of the destruction of the city of Thebes. It says that just as everyone thought Thebes was indestructible and unconquerable, and the Assyrians went in and destroyed Thebes, in the same way Nineveh is going to fall, just like Thebes did. Then we see in verse 14 through 17, we see the Assyrians referred to as locusts. The idea there is the locusts come and they may bring destruction, but you know what? Eventually one morning you get up and they're gone. And he says in the same way, the judgment of God is going to come and then it's finality and that there is a day when they will be gone. And that leads us to the last two verses that we see here in 18 and 19. He says, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep. Your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? He makes it clear to the king of Assyria, your day is done. Your day is done. And so as we look at this book, and it is a unique book, and I am confident that you will probably never hear a message on the book of Nahum again. Why? Because it's just a challenging book. But it is a book that can give us comfort. It can give us comfort to know that that what God does here in this moment to Nineveh and Assyria, there is a day that is coming that he will do to all evil. That his judgment will be perfect and final. Let's go to third base, gospel revelation. Where do we see Jesus in the book of Nineveh? Should we find Jesus in the book of Nineveh? Well, in Luke chapter 24, we see a moment of Jesus walking along the road after his resurrection. There's disciples that are with him. They don't recognize him. Then they do recognize him. And it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them who he was from the scriptures. So it reminds us that all of Scripture, Jesus is the hero, even of the book of Nahum. I love as we're hearing this judgment that is coming on evil and oppression. In the midst of all of that, we see the hope of verse 7. 
Look at me in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. That word refuge throughout the Old Testament oftentimes is used as an expression of faith. And so what we find here is God, we see these three chapters of judgment, 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 judgment that is coming on those that rightfully deserved it. And at the same time, we see a reminder of God's heart and his character towards those that take refuge in him. What is the significance of Jesus and his work on the cross? Why should Jesus go and die and and be buried and raised again from the dead? Well, the Bible is clear that all of us have sin in our life. We all have things in our life that we have done against God. We have done evil against God, and that's a bad place to be as we've seen today. But you see, when Jesus came to the cross for us, we see what is called substitutionary atonement. That when Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, And gets on that cross. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become, hear this, the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that there was a day, there was a moment that if you were not in Jesus, because of our sin, we are against God. Our sin is an affront to God and that sin must be punished. But when Christ goes to the cross, the Bible says that he becomes that sin for us, meaning this, that he takes on that punishment himself so that those who take refuge in him may not receive that punishment, but because they are taking refuge in this God that has shown them grace and mercy, that they might be spared from that because Christ has taken it himself. What should that mean for us today? One, it should stir our affections again for the significance of what Christ does on the cross. It's not just a box to check, but it's a recognition that because of my sin, I was an enemy of God. But that God in his love for me put the punishment on his son that I rightfully deserve so that I can take refuge in him and that the blood of Christ can cover my sin and so that now I can be a child of God. And so in the midst midst of judgment, God's goodness and grace allows you and I to have a place to find refuge. Let's touch home base here before we finish up. Life application. What does this book have to do with your life today? We know obviously the centrality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and him taking what we deserve on himself so that we can find refuge in him. Two things I want to give you. This is not an exhaustive list, but two things I want to give you. The first one is this, don't assume repentance from yesterday covers your need to repent today. Don't assume your repentance from yesterday covers your, your need to repent today. Why do I say that? Some of you, you, you're aware when we talk about Assyria and Nineveh, you say, I've heard that before. I've heard of Nineveh before. And maybe for some of you, you've already placed it, some of you haven't. But if we go back a couple of the minor prophets, you may be re- reminded of the book of Jonah. You remember in the book of Jonah where God said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites and I want you to tell them to repent because judgment is coming. Remember, Jonah had his own idea. He said, forget that. He went the opposite way, went to Tarshish to get on a boat. Things go bad there. He ends up in the belly of a fish. The fish spits him out and he says, okay, I'll go. And he goes to Nineveh and he says of Nineveh, it was a great city. It was a three days walk from one end to the other. And as he went across, he said, repent. Repent. Because destruction is coming. 
And in that moment, we see the grace of God that he didn't have to show towards the Ninevites, but he did in that moment. He showed grace to them, and it says that God relented from his judgment on the Ninevites because they acknowledged their sin and they repented. And now we find ourselves 150 years later. And what we find is that the actions and the activity of the Ninevites was worse than it was before. I think it's a reminder for us today that the call on our heart should not be just to settle for a moment back then when we made a decision, but to constantly live our lives with the heart of repentance that every day we're waking up and saying, God, I I, I want to acknowledge areas in my life where I've rebelled against you. I've chosen my way over your way. and, And I want to again today to bring before you my sin and to walk in your grace and your peace. I'm not saying that this is something that we have to get saved every day of the week. No, I believe once you've given your life to Christ, it is more con- we're more concerned with what he did for us and what we do for him. And we're more concerned about his work on the cross. But understand, just because we've come to a moment of trusting in Christ doesn't mean that our time for repentance has ended. And so don't assume that repentance from yesterday covers your need to repent today. And the last thing is this. Trust today that God will take care of tomorrow. Trust today that God will take care of tomorrow. For some of you today, you never would have imagined that God would use the book of Nahum to pinpoint what's going on in your life. But the reality is, it may not be a great world empire that has brought oppression on your life, but there are things that you're walking through right now that make it hard to sleep at night. There's things that you're experiencing in your family or in the workplace or in our culture that just constantly feel like evil will not relent. And I pray that the book of Nahum would would comfort you today, would comfort you to know that, listen, the Lord is slow to anger and that the Lord is good. And at the same time, God will not allow evil to go unpunished. There is a day that is coming when we are confident because of God's word and his revelation when evil will be defeated. And I wish today that I could say to you, for some of you that are walking through a difficult season right now, I could say, hey, tomorrow it's all over. But I can't say that to you. But here's what I can say. I'm confident that the Lord is good. He is good to those who take refuge in him. My prayer today is that if you're walking through hardship today, that you would trust God for your tomorrow because you're going to take refuge in him and to know that he will carry you along the way. And our ultimate hope as we consider that we can trust today that God will take care of tomorrow is what we find in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, it tells us that just as God's judgment would be final and perfect with the Assyrians, that that day is coming when God's judgment will be final and perfect with all of creation. It tells us that all that is evil will be thrown into the lake of fire. And in that same time, in that same time of God's judgment towards sin and towards evil, there's the picture of grace that anyone whose name is written in the book of life will not be thrown in. That's our hope today, that the Lord is good and he is a refuge In the midst of his judgment, he is a refuge for those that are in him. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
we hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need. And I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104. And we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.